0: Hey everyone, it's me. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you're all staying safe, staying healthy, staying alive. Hope you're all doing well. I haven't had to say, hey, hope your commute's going well for a while, which is nice. I hope no one's having a commute unless you want to commute. And just, just stay safe out there, everyone. For the month of June, we're going to be talking about Algernon Blackwood. And also, we're also going to be talking about Glacky for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Stay with us. And also remember that this show is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. You know, it's, it's, it's getting warm out. But if you're like me, can't sleep. Having problems wandering around the house, middle of the night, cleaning. Eh. Linoleum's cold. Hardwood floors are cold. Ceramic's cold. Tile's cold. You know what's not cold? Bunny slippers. Highland cow slippers. Look cool, like uh what, what, what Chris Knight from Real Genius with Val Kilmer. Get some cool bunny slippers, and then head on over to founditemclothing.com and get one of those cool shirts that he wears. I Heart Toxic Waste, or surf nicaragua or any of those shirts that i don't know maybe they're problematic nowadays i i I don't remember what they all are and you know what if there was something that you thought was funny before that it's now problematic and you've decided to change your mind about whether or not you think it's problematic or not you know you, you 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 no longer think that certain jokes in revenge of the nerds are funny good for you that's called growth and it's okay. You're not a you're not a hypocrite if you change your mind if that you decide that past beliefs aren't what they are and that you're smarter about it. Remember to use your voice, remember to vote, remember to help people who need help. Don't I don't know. I I don't I don't feel like it's my job to tell people what to do. I don't feel like it's my job to but oh man, I, I sure feel responsible if I don't. I sure feel like I could have said something, someone could have learned something, and whatever. I feel like I've been bullied in the past by people who don't want to hear what I have to say or don't like what I have to say. And those people can pretty much go away. I don't want them listening to my show. I don't want them writing in. Stay safe and check the show notes for how you can help people. And here's some Algernon Blackwood. Four Weird Tales for you. Here we go.
1: Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood The Man Who Found Out Chapter 3 A year passed slowly by, and at the end of it Dr. Laidlaw had found it necessary to sever his working connection with his friend and one-time leader. Professor Ebor was no longer the same man, The light had gone out of his life. The laboratory was closed, and he no longer put pen to paper or applied his mind to a single problem. In the short space of a few months, he had passed from a hale and hearty man of late middle life to the condition of old age. A man collapsed and on the edge of dissolution. Death, it was plain, lay waiting for him in the shadows of any day, and he knew it. To describe faithfully the nature of this profound alteration in his character and temperament is not easy. But Dr. Laidlaw summed it up to himself in three words. Loss of hope. The splendid mental powers remained, indeed undimmed, but the incentive to use them, to use them for the help of others, had gone. The character still held to its fine and unselfish habits of years and but the far goal to which they had been the leading strings had faded away. The desire for knowledge, knowledge for its own sake, had died, and the passionate hope, which hitherto had animated with tireless energy the heart and brain of the splendidly equipped intellect, had suffered total eclipse. The central fires had gone out. Nothing was worth doing, thinking, or working for." There was nothing to work for any longer. The professor's first step was to recall as many of his books as possible. His second was to close his laboratory and stop all research. He gave no explanation. He invited no questions. His whole personality crumbled away, so to speak, till his daily life became a mere mechanical process of clothing the body, feeding the body, keeping it in good health so as to avoid physical discomfort, and, above all, doing nothing that could interfere with sleep. The professor did everything he could to lengthen the hours of sleep and, therefore, of forgetfulness. It was all clear enough to Dr. Laidlaw. A weaker man, he knew, would have sought to lose himself in one form or another of sensual indulgence, sleeping draughts, drink, the first pleasures that came to hand. Self-destruction would have been the method of a little bolder type, and deliberate evil-doing, poisoning with his awful knowledge all he could, the means of still another kind of man. Mark Eber was none of these. He held himself under fine control, facing silently and without complaint the terrible facts he honestly believed himself to have been unfortunate enough to discover. Even to his intimate friend and assistant, Dr. Laidlaw, he vouchsafed no word of true explanation or lament. He went straight forward to the end, knowing full well that the end was not very far away. And death came very quietly one day to him, as he was sitting in the armchair of the study, directly facing the doors of the laboratory, the doors that no longer opened... Dr. Laidlaw, by happy chance, was with him at the time and just able to reach his side in response to the sudden painful efforts for breath, just in time, too, to catch the murmured words that fell from the pallid lips, like a message from the other side of the grave. "'Read them if you must, and if you can, destroy.' But his voice sank so low that Dr. Laidlaw only just caught the dying syllables." but never, never give them to the world. And like a grey bundle of dust loosely gathered up in an old garment, the professor sank back into his chair and expired. But this was only the death of the body. His spirit had died two years before. Chapter 4 The estate of the dead man was small and uncomplicated, And Dr. Laidlaw, as sole executor and residuary legatee, had no difficulty in setting it up. A month after the funeral, he was sitting alone in his upstairs library, the last sad duties completed, and his mind full of poignant memories and regrets for the loss of a friend he had revered and loved, and to whom his debt was so incalculably great. The last two years, indeed, had been for him terrible." To watch the swift decay of the greatest combination of heart and brain he had ever known, and to realize he was powerless to help, was a source of profound grief to him that would remain to the end of his days. At the same time, an insatiable curiosity possessed him. The study of dementia was, of course, outside his special province as a specialist, but he knew enough of it to understand how small a matter might be the actual cause of how great an illusion, and he had been devoured from the very beginning by a ceaseless and increasing anxiety to know what the professor had found in the sands of Chaldea, what these precious tablets of the gods might be, and particularly, for this was the real cause that had sapped the man's sanity and hope, what the inscription was that he had believed to have deciphered thereon. The curious feature of it all to his own mind was that whereas his friend had dreamed of finding a message of glorious hope and comfort, he had apparently found, so far as he had found anything intelligible at all, and not invented the whole thing in his dementia, that the secret of the world and the meaning of life and death was of so terrible a nature that it robbed the heart of courage and the soul of hope. What then could be the contents of the little brown parcel the professor had bequeathed to him with his pregnant, dying sentences? Actually, his hand was trembling as he turned to the writing-table and began slowly to unfasten a small old-fashioned desk on which the small gilt initials M.E. stood forth as a melancholy memento. He put the key into the lock and half-turned it. And then suddenly he stopped and looked about him. "'Was that a sound at the back of the room? "'It was just as though someone had laughed "'and then tried to smother the laugh with a cough. "'A slight shiver ran over him as he stood listening. "'This is absurd,' he said aloud, "'too absurd for belief that I should be so nervous. "'It's the effect of curiosity unduly prolonged.' "'He smiled a little sadly, "'and his eyes wandered to the blue summer sky "'and the plain trees swaying in the wind below his window.' "'It's the reaction,' he continued, "'the curiosity of two years to be quenched in a single moment. "'The nervous tension, of course, must be considerable. "'He turned back to the brown desk and opened it without further delay. "'His hand was firm now, and he took out the paper parcel "'that lay inside without a tremor. "'It was heavy. "'A moment later there lay on the table before him "'a couple of weather-worn plaques of grey stone.' They looked like stone, although they felt like metal, on which he saw markings of a curious character that might have been the mere tracings of natural forces through the ages, or equally well the half obliterated hieroglyphics cut upon their surface in past centuries by the more or less untutored hand of a common scribe. He lifted each stone in turn and examined it carefully. It seemed to him that a faint glow of heat passed from the substance into his skin, and he put them down again suddenly, as with a gesture of uneasiness. A very clever or a very imaginative man, he said to himself, who could squeeze the secrets of life and death from such broken lines as those, and then he turned to a yellow envelope lying beside them in the desk, with a single word on the outside in the writing of the professor, the word TRANSLATION. "'Now,' he thought, taking it up with a sudden violence to conceal his nervousness, "'now for the great solution, now to learn the meaning of the worlds, "'and why mankind was made, and why discipline is worthwhile, "'and sacrifice and pain, the true law of advancement.' "'There was the shadow of a sneer in his voice, "'and yet something in him shivered at the same time. "'He held the envelope as though weighing it in his hand.' "'his mind pondering many things. "'Then curiosity won the day, "'and he suddenly tore it open with the gesture of an actor "'who tears open a letter on the stage, "'knowing there is no real writing inside at all. "'A page of finely written script "'in the late scientist's handwriting lay before him. "'He read it through from beginning to end, "'missing no word, "'uttering each syllable distinctly under his breath as he read.' The pallor of his face grew ghastly as he neared the end. He began to shake all over, as with ague. His breath came heavily in gasps. He still gripped the sheet of paper, however, and deliberately, as by an intense effort of will, read it through a second time from beginning to end. And this time, as the last syllable dropped from his lips, the whole face of the man flamed with a sudden and terrible anger. His skin became deep, deep red, and he clenched his teeth. With all the strength of his vigorous soul, he was struggling to keep control of himself. For perhaps five minutes he stood there, beside the table, without stirring a muscle. He might have been carved out of stone. His eyes were shut, and only the heaving of the chest betrayed the fact that he was a living being— and then with a strange quietness he lit a match and applied it to the sheet of paper he held in his hand. The ashes fell slowly about him, piece by piece, and he blew them from the window sill into the air, his eyes following them as they floated away on the summer wind that breathed so warmly over the world. He turned back slowly into the room, although his actions and movements were absolutely steady and controlled. "'It was clear that he was on the edge of violent action. "'A hurricane might burst upon the still room at any moment. "'His muscles were tense and rigid. "'And then suddenly he whitened, collapsed, "'and sank backwards into a chair "'like a tumbled bundle of inert matter. "'He had fainted. "'In less than half an hour he recovered consciousness and sat up. "'As before he made no sound, not a syllable passed his lips.' He rose quietly and looked about the room, and then he did a curious thing. Taking a heavy stick from the rack in the corner, he approached the mantelpiece, and with a heavy, shattering blow, he smashed the clock to pieces. The glass fell in shivering atoms. "'Cease your lying voice forever,' he said, in a curiously still, even tone. "'There is no such thing as time.' He took the watch from his pocket." "'swung it round several times by the long gold chain, "'smashed it into smithereens against the wall with a single blow, "'and then walked into his laboratory next door "'and hung its broken body on the bones of the skeleton "'in the corner of the room. "'Let one damned mockery hang upon another,' he said, smiling oddly. "'Delusions, both of you, and cruel as false.' "'He slowly moved back to the front room,' He stopped opposite the bookcase where stood in a row the scriptures of the world, choicely bound and exquisitely printed the late professor's most treasured possession, and next to them several books signed Pilgrim. One by one he took them from the shelf and hurled them through the open window. A devil's dreams, a devil's foolish dreams, he cried with a vicious laugh. Presently he stopped from sheer exhaustion. He turned his eyes slowly to the wall opposite, where hung a weird array of eastern swords and daggers, scimitars and spears, the collections of many journeys. He crossed the room and ran his finger along the edge. His mind seemed to waver. No, he muttered presently, not that way. There are easier and better ways than that. He took his hat and passed downstairs into the street. CHAPTER Five. It was five o'clock, and the June sun lay hot upon the pavement. He felt the metal doorknob burn the palm of his hand. "'Ah, Laidlaw, this is well met!' cried a voice at his elbow. "'I was in the act of coming to see you. I have a case that will interest you, and besides I remember that you flavoured your tea with orange leaves, and I admit it was Alexis Stephen, the great hypnotic doctor.' I've had no tea today, Laidlaw said in a dazed manner. After staring for a moment as though the other had struck him in the face, a new idea had entered his mind. What's the matter? asked Dr. Stephen quickly. Something's wrong with you? It's this sudden heat or overwork. Come, man, let's go inside. A sudden light broke upon the face of the younger man, the light of a heaven sent inspiration. He looked into his friend's face and told a direct lie. Odd, he said. I myself was just coming to see you. I have something of great importance to test your confidence with. But in your house, please, as Stephen urged him towards his own door. In your house. It's only round the corner. I I cannot go back there to my rooms till I have told you. I'm your patient for the moment, he added stammeringly, as soon as they were seated in the privacy of the hypnotist's sanctum. And I want... er. "'My dear Laidlaw interrupted the other "'in that soothing voice of command "'which had suggested to many a suffering soul "'that the cure for its pain "'lay in the powers of its own reawakened will. "'I am always at your service, as you know. "'You have only to tell me what I can do for you, "'and I will do it.' "'He showed every desire to help him out. "'His manner was indescribably tactful and direct.' "'Dr. Laidlaw looked up into his face.' "'I surrender my will to you,' he said, "'already calmed by the other's healing presence, "'and I want you to treat me hypnotically and at once. "'I want you to suggest to me,' his voice became very tense, "'that I shall forget, forget till I die, "'everything that had occurred to me during the last two hours. "'Till I die, mind,' he added, with solemn emphasis. "'Till I die,' "'He floundered and stammered like a frightened boy. "'Alex Stephen looked at him fixedly without speaking. "'And further,' Laidlaw continued, "'I want you to ask me no questions. "'I wish to forget forever something I have recently discovered, "'something so terrible and yet so obvious "'that I can hardly understand why it is not patent to every mind in the world, "'for I have had a moment of absolute clear vision, "'of merciless clairvoyance.' "'but I want no one else in the whole world to know what it is, "'least of all, old friend, yourself.' "'He talked in utter confusion, and hardly knew what he was saying, "'but the pain on his face and the anguish in his voice "'were an instant passport to the other's heart. "'Nothing is easier,' replied Dr. Stephen, "'after a hesitation so slight that the other probably did not even notice it. "'Come into my other room, where we shall not be disturbed.' I can heal you. Your memory of the last two hours shall be wiped out as though it had never been. You can trust me absolutely. I know I can, Laidlaw said simply as he followed him in. Chapter 6. An hour later they passed back into the front room again. The sun was already behind the houses opposite, and the shadows began to gather. I went off easily? Laidlaw asked. "'You were a little obstinate at first, "'but though you came in like a lion, "'you went out like a lamb. "'I let you sleep a bit afterwards.' "'Dr. Stephen kept his eyes rather steadily "'upon his friend's face. "'What were you doing by the fire before you came here?' "'he asked, pausing in a casual tone, "'as he lit a cigarette and handed the case to his patient. "'I... let me see. "'Oh, I know. "'I was worrying my way through poor old Ebor's papers and things.' "'I'm his executor, you know.' "'Then I got weary and came out for a whiff of air.' "'He spoke lightly and with perfect naturalness. "'Obviously he was telling the truth. "'I prefer specimens to papers,' he laughed cheerily. "'I know, I know,' said Dr. Stephen, "'holding a lighted match for the cigarette. "'His face wore an expression of content. "'The experiment had been a complete success. "'The memory of the last two hours was wiped out utterly.' Laidlaw was already chatting gaily and easily "'about a dozen other things that interested him. "'Together they went out into the street, "'and at his door Dr. Stephen left him with a joke "'and a wry face that made his friend laugh heartily. "'Don't dine on the professor's old papers by mistake,' he cried, "'as he vanished down the street. "'Dr. Laidlaw went up to his study at the top of the house. "'Halfway down he met his housekeeper, Mrs. Fewings. "'She was flustered and excited.' Her face was very red and perspiring. "'There have been burglars here,' she cried excitedly, "'or something funny. "'All your things is just anyhow, sir. "'I found everything all about everywhere.' She was very confused. In this orderly and very precise establishment, it was unusual to find a thing out of place. "'Oh, my specimens!' cried the doctor, dashing up the rest of the stairs at top speed. "'Have they been touched or—' "'He flew to the door of the laboratory. "'Mrs. Fewings panted up heavily behind him. "'The laboratory ain't been touched,' she explained breathlessly. "'But they smashed the library clock, "'and they've ung your gold watch, sir, on the skeleton's hands, "'and the books that weren't no value "'they flung out out of the window just like so much rubbish. "'They must have been wild drunk, Dr. Laidlaw, sir.' "'The young scientist made a hurried examination of the rooms. "'Nothing of value was missing. "'He began to wonder what kind of burglars they were.' He looked up sharply at Mrs. Fewings, standing in the doorway. For a moment he seemed to cast about in his mind for something. "'Odd,' he said at length. "'I only left here an hour ago, and everything was all right then.' "'Was it, sir?' "'Yes, sir.' She glanced sharply at him. Her room looked out upon the courtyard, and she must have seen the books come crashing down, and also have heard her master leave the house a few minutes later. "'And what's this rubbish the brutes have left?' he cried. "'Taking up two slabs of worn grey stone on the writing-table? "'Bath-brick or something, I do declare.' "'He looked very sharply again at the confused and troubled housekeeper. "'Throw them in the dust-heap, Mrs. Fewings, "'and let me know if anything is missing in the house, "'and I will notify the police this evening.' "'When she left the room, he went into the laboratory "'and took his watch off the skeleton's fingers. "'His face wore a troubled expression, "'but after a moment's thought it cleared again.' His memory was a complete blank. I suppose I left it on the writing-table when I went out to take the air, he said, and there was no one present to contradict him. He crossed to the window and blew carelessly some ashes of burned paper from the sill and stood watching them as they floated away lazily over the tops of the trees. End of The Man Who Found Out Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood The Glamour of the Snow Chapter 1 Hibbert, always conscious of two worlds, was in this mountain village, conscious of three. It lay on the slopes of the Valais Alps, and he had taken a room in the little post office where he could be at peace to write his book, yet at the same time enjoyed the winter sports and find companionship in the hotels when he wanted it. The three worlds that met and mingled here seemed to his imaginative temperament very obvious, though it is doubtful if another mind, less intuitively equipped, would have seen them so well defined. There was the world of tourist English, civilized, quasi-educated, to which he belonged by birth. At any rate, there was the world of peasants, to which he felt himself drawn by sympathy, for he loved and admired their toiling, simple life. And there was this other, which he could only call the world of nature. To this last, however, in virtue of a vehement poetic imagination and a tumultuous pagan instinct fed by his very blood, he felt that most of him belonged. The others borrowed from it, as it were, for visits. Here, with the soul of nature, hid his central life. Between all three was conflict, potential conflict. On the skating rink each Sunday, the tourists regarded the natives as intruders. In the church, the peasants plainly questioned, Why do you come? We are here to worship, you to stare and whisper. For neither of these two worlds accepted the other, and neither did nature accept the tourists, for it took advantage of their least mistakes. And indeed even if the peasant world accepted only those who were strong and bold enough to invade her savage domain with sufficient skill to protect themselves from several forms of death. Now Hibbert was keenly aware of this potential conflict and want of harmony. He felt outside, and yet caught by it, torn in the three directions because he was partly of each world, but wholly in only one. There grew in him a constant, subtle effort, or at least desire, to unify them, and decide positively to which he should belong and live in. The attempt, of course, was largely subconscious. It was the natural instinct of a richly imaginative nature seeking the point of equilibrium, so that the mind could feel at peace, and his brain be free to do good work. Among the guests, no one especially claimed his interest. The men were nice, but undistinguished. Athletic schoolmasters, doctors snatching a holiday, good fellows all. The women, equally various the clever, the would be fast, the dare to be dull, the women who understood, and the usual pack of jolly dancing girls and flappers. And Hibbert, with his forty odd years of thick experience behind him, got on well with the lot. He understood them all. They belonged to definite pre-digested types that are the same world over, and that he had met the world over long ago. But to none of them did he belong. His nature was too multiple to subscribe to the set of shibboleths of any one class, and since all liked him and felt that somehow he seemed outside of them, spectator, looker-on, all sought to claim him. In a sense, therefore, the three worlds fought for him, natives, tourists, nature. It was thus began the singular conflict for the soul of Hibbert. In his own soul, however, it took place. Neither the peasants nor the tourists were conscious that they fought for anything, and nature, they say, is merely blind and automatic. The assault upon him of the peasants may be left out of account, for it is obvious they stood no chance of success. The tourist world, however, made a gallant effort to subdue him to themselves. But the evenings in the hotel, when dancing was not in order, were English. The provincial imagination was set upon a throne and worshipped heavily through incense of the stupidest conventions possible. Hibbert used to go back early to his room in the post office to work. It is a mistake on my part to have realized that there is any conflict at all, he thought, as he crunched home over the snow at midnight after one of the dances. It would have been better to have kept outside it all and done my work. Better, he added, looking back down the silent village street to the church tower, and safer. The adjective slipped from his mind before he was aware of it he turned with an involuntary start and looked about him. He knew perfectly well what it meant, this thought that had thrust its head up from the instinctive region. He understood without being able to express it fully the meaning that betrayed itself in the choice of the adjective. For if he had ignored the existence of this conflict, he would at the same time have remained outside the arena, whereas now he had entered the lists." Now this battle for his soul must have issue. And he knew that the spell of nature was greater for him than all other spells in the world combined, greater than love, revelry, pleasure, greater even than study. He had always been afraid to let himself go. His pagan soul dreaded her terrific powers of witchery even while he worshipped. The little village already slept. The world lay smothered in snow. The chalet roofs shone white beneath the moon, and pitch-black shadows gathered against the walls of the church. His eye rested a moment on the square stone tower, with its frosted cross that pointed to the sky, then traveled with a leap of many thousand feet to the enormous mountains that brushed the brilliant stars, like a forest rose the huge peaks above the slumbering village, measuring the night and heavens." They beckoned him, and something born of the snowy desolation, born of the midnight and the silent grandeur, born of the great listening hollows of the night, something that lay twixt terror and wonder, dropped from the vast wintry spaces down into his heart, and called him. Very softly, unrecorded in any word or thought his brain could compass, it laid its spell upon him. Fingers of snow, "'brushed the surface of his heart. "'The power and quiet majesty of the winter's night appalled him. "'Fumbling a moment with a big unwieldy key, "'he let himself in and went upstairs to bed. Two thoughts went with him, "'apparently quite ordinary and sensible ones. "'What fools these peasants are to sleep through such a night! "'And the other? "'Those dances tire me. "'I'll never go again.' "'My work only suffers in the morning.' "'The claims of peasants and tourists upon him "'seemed thus in a single instant weakened. "'The clash of battle troubled half his dreams. "'Nature had sent her beauty of the night "'and won the first assault. "'The others, routed and dismayed, "'fled far away.' "'Chapter Two "'Don't go back to your dreary old post-office. "'We're going to have supper in my room. "'Something hot.' "'Come and join us. Hurry up.' "'There had been an ice carnival, "'and the last party tailing up the snow-slope to the hotel called him. "'The Chinese lanterns smoked and sputtered on the wires. "'The band had long since gone. "'The cold was bitter and the moon came only momentarily "'between high driving clouds. "'From the shed where the people changed from skates to snow boots, "'he shouted something to the effect that he was following, "'but no answer came.' The moving shadows of those who had called were already merged high up against the village darkness. The voices died away, doors slammed. Hibbert found himself alone on the deserted rink. And it was then, quite suddenly, the impulse came to stay and skate alone. The thought of the stuffy hotel room and of those noisy people with their obvious jokes and laughter oppressed him. He felt a longing to be alone with the night, to taste her wonder all by himself, there beneath the stars, gliding over the ice. It was not yet midnight, and he could skate for half an hour. That supper-party, if they noticed his absence at all, would merely think he had changed his mind and gone to bed. It was an impulse, yes, and not an unnatural one. Yet even at the time it struck him that something more than impulse lay concealed behind it. More than an invitation, yet certainly less than command. There was a vague queer feeling that he stayed because he had to, almost as though there was something he had forgotten, overlooked, left undone. Imaginative temperaments are often thus, and impulse is ever weakness. "'for with such ill-considered opening of the doors to hasty action "'may come an invasion of other forces at the same time, "'forces merely waiting their opportunity, perhaps. "'He caught the fugitive warning even while he dismissed it as absurd, "'and the next minute he was whirling over the smooth ice "'in delightful curves and loops beneath the moon. "'There was no fear of collision. "'He could take his own speed and space as he willed, THE SHADOWS OF THE TOWERING MOUNTAINS FELL ACROSS THE RINK, AND A WIND OF ICE CAME FROM THE FORESTS, WHERE THE SNOW LAY TEN FEET DEEP. THE HOTEL LIGHTS WINKED AND WENT OUT. THE VILLAGE SLEPT. THE HIGH WIRE NETTING COULD NOT KEEP OUT THE WONDER OF THE WINTER NIGHT THAT GREW ABOUT HIM LIKE A PRESENCE. HE SKATED ON AND ON, KEEN, exhilarating PLEASURE IN HIS TINGLING BLOOD AND WEARINESS ALL FORGOTTEN. AND THEN... Midway, in the delight of rushing movement, he saw a figure gliding behind the wire netting, watching him. With a start that almost made him lose his balance, for the abruptness of the new arrival was so unlooked for, he paused and stared. Although the light was dim, he made out that it was the figure of a woman and that she was feeling her way along the netting, trying to get in. Against the white background of the snowfield he watched her rather stealthy efforts as she passed with a silent step over the banked-up snow. She was tall and slim and graceful. He could see that even in the dark. And then, of course, he understood. It was another adventurous skater like himself, stolen down unawares from hotel or chalet and searching for the opening. At once, making a sign and pointing with one hand, he turned swiftly— and skated over to the little entrance on the other side. But even before he got there, there was a sound on the ice behind him, and with an exclamation of amazement he could not suppress, he turned to see her swerving up to his side across the width of the rink. She had somehow found another way in. Hibbert, as a rule, was punctilious and in these free and easy places, perhaps especially so, if only for his own protection, he did not seek to make advances unless some kind of introduction paved the way. But for these two to skate together in the semi-darkness without speech, often of necessity brushing shoulders almost, was too absurd to think of. Accordingly, he raised his cap and spoke. His actual words he seems unable to recall, nor what the girl said in reply— "'except that she answered him in accented English "'with some commonplace about "'doing figures at midnight on an empty rink. "'Quite natural it was, and right. "'She wore grey clothes of some kind, "'though not the customary long gloves or sweater, "'for indeed her hands were bare, "'and presently when he skated with her, "'he wondered with something like astonishment "'at their dry and icy coldness. "'And she was delicious to skate with, "'supple, sure, and light, fast as a man, "'yet with the freedom of a child, "'sinuous and steady at the same time. "'Her flexibility made him wonder, "'and when he asked where she had learned, "'she murmured, he caught the breath against his ear, "'and recalled later that it was singularly cold, "'that she could hardly tell, "'for she had been accustomed to the ice "'ever since she could remember. "'But her face he never properly saw.' A muffler of white fur buried her neck to the ears, and her cap came over the eyes. He only saw that she was young, nor could he gather her hotel or chalet, for she pointed vaguely when he asked her, "'Up the slopes? Just over there,' she said, quickly taking his hand again. He did not press her. No doubt she wished to hide her escapade and the touch of her hand thrilled him more than anything he could remember. Even through his thick glove, he felt the softness of that cold and delicate softness. The clouds thickened over the mountains. It grew darker. They talked very little, and did not always skate together. Often they separated, curving about in corners by themselves, but always coming together again in the center of the rink. And when she left him, thus Hibbert was conscious of, yes, "'Missing her, he found a peculiar satisfaction, "'almost a fascination, in skating by her side. "'It was quite an adventure, these two strangers, "'with the ice and snow and night. "'Midnight had long since sounded from the old church tower "'before they parted. "'She gave the sign, and he skated quickly to the shed, "'meaning to find a seat and help her take her skates off. "'Yet when he turned, she had already gone.' He saw her slim figure gliding away across the snow, and hurrying for the last time round the rink alone, he searched in vain for the opening she had twice used in this curious way. How very queer, he thought, referring to the wire netting. She must have lifted it and wriggled under. Wondering how in the world she managed it, What in the world had possessed him to be so free with her, and who in the world she was, he went up the steep slope to the post-office, and so to bed, her promise to come again another night still ringing delightfully in his ears, and curious were the thoughts and sensations that accompanied him. Most of all, perhaps, was the half-suggestion of some dim memory that he had known this girl before, had met her somewhere more, that she knew him. For, in her voice, a low, soft, windy little voice it was, tender and soothing for all its quiet coldness, there lay some faint reminder of two others he had known, both long since gone, the voice of the woman he had loved, and the voice of his mother. But this time, through his dreams, there ran no clash of battle, He was conscious, rather, of something cold and clinging that made him think of sifting snowflakes climbing slowly with entangling touch and thickness round his feet. The snow, coming without noise, each flake so light and tiny, none can mark the spot whereon it settles, yet the mass of it, able to smother whole villages, wove through the very texture of his mind. Cold, cold bewildering, deadening effort with its clinging network of ten million feathery touches. End of chapter two of The Glamour of the Snow Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood The Glamour of the Snow Chapter Three In the morning... "'Hibbert realized he had done perhaps a foolish thing. "'The brilliant sunshine that drenched the valley made him see this, "'and the sight of his work-table with its typewriter, "'books, papers, and the rest, brought additional conviction. "'To have skated with a girl alone at midnight, "'no matter how innocently the thing had come about, "'was unwise, unfair especially to her.' Gossip in these little winter resorts was worse than in a provincial town. He hoped no one had seen them. Luckily, the night had been dark. Most likely none had heard the ring of skates. Deciding that in the future he would be more careful, he plunged into work and sought to dismiss the matter from his mind. But in his times of leisure, the memory returned persistently to haunt him. When he skied, lugged, or danced in the evenings— and especially when he skated on the little rink he was aware that the eye of his mind forever sought this strange companion of the night a hundred times he fancied that he saw her but always sight deceived him her face he might not know but he could hardly fail to recognize her figure yet nowhere among the others did he catch a glimpse of that slim young creature he had skated with alone beneath the clouded stars he searched in vain "'Even his inquiries as to the occupants of the private chalets "'brought no results. "'He had lost her. "'But the queer thing was that he felt as though she was somewhere close. "'He knew she had not really gone. "'While people came and left every day, "'it never once occurred to him that she had left. "'On the contrary, he felt assured that they would meet again. "'This thought he never quite acknowledged. "'Perhaps it was the wish,' That fathered it only. And even when he did meet her, it was a question how he would speak and claim acquaintance, or whether she would recognize himself. It might be awkward. He almost came to dread a meeting, although dread, of course, was far too strong a word to describe an emotion that was half delight, half wondering anticipation. Meanwhile, the season was in full swing. Hibbert felt in perfect health. Worked hard, skied, skated, lugged, and at night danced fairly often, in spite of his decision. This dancing was, however, an act of subconscious surrender. It really meant he hoped to find her among the whirling couples. He was searching for her without quite acknowledging it to himself, and the hotel world, meanwhile, thinking it had won him over, teased and chaffed him. He made excuses in a similar vein. But all the time he watched, and searched, and waited. For several days the sky held clear and bright and frosty, bitterly cold, everything crisp and sparkling in the sun. But there was no sign of fresh snow, and the skiers began to grumble. On the mountains was an icy crust that made running dangerous. They wanted the frozen dry and powdery snow that makes for speed, renders steering easier and falling less severe but the keen east wind showed no signs of changing for a whole ten days. Then suddenly there came a touch of softer air, and the weather-wise began to prophesy. Hibbert, who was delicately sensitive to the least change in earth or sky, was perhaps the first to feel it. Only he did not prophesy. He knew through every nerve in his body that moisture had crept into the air, was accumulating, and that presently a fall would come, for he responded to the moods of nature like a fine barometer. And the knowledge this time brought into his heart a strange little wayward emotion that was hard to account for, a feeling of unexplained uneasiness and disquieting joy, for behind it, woven through it rather, ran a faint exhilaration that connected remotely somewhere with that touch of delicious alarm "'that tiny anticipating dread "'that so puzzled him "'when he thought of his next meeting "'with his skating companion of the night. "'It lay beyond all words, "'all telling, "'this queer relationship between the two, "'but somehow the girl and Snow "'ran in a pair across his mind. "'Perhaps for imaginative writing-men "'more than for other workers, "'the smallest change of mood "'betrays itself at once.' His work, at any rate, revealed the slight shifting of emotional values in his soul, not that his writing suffered, but that it altered, subtly, as those changes of sky or sea or landscape that come with the passing of afternoon into evening, imperceptibly. A subconscious excitement sought to push outwards and express itself, and knowing the uneven effect such moods produced in his work, "'He laid his pen aside "'and took instead to reading "'that he had to do. "'Meanwhile the brilliance passed from the sunshine. "'The sky grew slowly overcast. "'By dusk the mountain tops came singularly close and sharp. "'The distant valley rose into absurdly near perspective. "'The moisture increased, "'rapidly approaching saturation point "'when it must fall in snow. "'Hibbert watched and waited.' And in the morning, the world lay smothered beneath its fresh white carpet. It snowed heavily till noon, thickly, incessantly, chokingly, a foot or more. Then the sky cleared. The sun came out in splendor. The wind shifted back to the east, and frost came down upon the mountains with its keenest and most biting tooth. The drop in the temperature was tremendous, but the skiers were jubilant. Next day the running would be fast and perfect, already the mass was settling, and the surface freezing into those moss-like powdery crystals that make the ski-run almost of their own accord with a faint sishing as of a bird's wings through the air. CHAPTER FOUR That night there was excitement in the little hotel world, first because there was a bal costume, chiefly because the new snow had come, and Hibbert went. "'felt drawn to go. "'He did not go in costume, "'but he wanted to talk about the slopes "'and skiing with the other men, "'and at the same time. "'Ah, there was the truth, "'the deeper necessity that called, "'for the singular connection "'between the stranger and the snow "'again betrayed itself, "'utterly beyond explanation as before, "'but vital and insistent. "'Some hidden instinct in his pagan soul.' "'Heaven knows how he phrased it even to himself, "'if he phrased it at all, "'whispered that with the snow the girl would be somewhere about, "'would emerge from her hiding place, "'would even look for him. "'Absolutely unwarranted it was, "'he laughed while he stood before the little glass "'and trimmed his moustache, "'tried to make his black tie sit straight, "'and shook down his dinner jacket "'so that it should lie upon the shoulders without a crease. "'His brown eyes were very bright,' I look younger than I usually do, he thought. It was unusual, even significant, in a man who had no vanity about his appearance, and certainly never questioned his age or tried to look younger than he was. Affairs of the heart, with one tumultuous exception that left no fuel for lesser subsequent fires, had never troubled him. The forces of his soul and mind— not called upon for work and obvious duties, all went to nature. The desolate wild places of the earth were what he loved night and the beauty of the stars and snow. And this evening he felt their claims upon him mightily stirring. A rising wildness caught his blood, quickened his pulse, woke longing and passion too, but chiefly snow. The snow whirled softly through his thoughts like white seductive dreams, for the snow had come, and she, it seemed, had somehow come with it into his mind. And yet he stood before that twisted mirror, and pulled his tie and coat askew a dozen times as though it mattered. What in the world is up with me, he thought, and then laughing a little he turned before leaving the room to put his private papers in order." The green morocco desk that held them he took down from the shelf and laid upon the table. Tied to the lid was the visiting card with his brother's London address in case of accident. On the way down to the hotel he wondered why he had done this, for though imaginative, he was not the kind of man who dealt in presentiments. Moods with him were strong, but ever held in leash. It's almost like a warning, he thought, smiling. He drew his thick coat tightly round the throat as the freezing air bit at him. Those warnings one reads of in stories sometimes. A delicious happiness was in his blood. Over the edge of the hills across the valley rose the moon. He saw her silver sheet the world of snow. Snow covered all. It smothered sound and distance. It smothered houses, streets, and human beings. It smothered life. Chapter 5 In the hall there was light and bustle. People were already arriving from the other hotels and chalets, their costumes hidden beneath many wraps. Groups of men in evening dress stood about smoking, talking, snow, and skiing. The band was tuning up. The claims of the hotel world clashed about him faintly as of old. At the big glass windows of the veranda, peasants stopped a moment on their way home from the café to peer— Hibbert thought laughingly of that conflict he used to imagine. He laughed because it suddenly seemed so unreal. He belonged so utterly to nature and the mountains, and especially to those desolate slopes where now the snow lay thick and fresh and sweet, that there was no question of a conflict at all. The power of the newly fallen snow had caught him, proving it without effort. Out there upon those lonely reaches of the moonlit ridges, The snow lay ready, masses and masses of it, cool, soft, inviting. He longed for it. It awaited him. He thought of the intoxicating delight of skiing in the moonlight. Thus, somehow, in vivid flashing vision, he thought of it while he stood there smoking with the other men and talking all the shop of skiing. And ever mysteriously blended with this power of the snow, poured also through his inner being the power of the girl. He could not disabuse his mind of the insinuating presence of the two together. He remembered that queer-skating impulse of ten days ago, the impulse that had let her in. That any mind, even an imaginative one, could pass beneath the sway of such a fancy was strange enough, and Hibbert, while fully aware of the disorder, yet found a curious joy in yielding to it, This insubordinate center that drew him towards old pagan beliefs had assumed command. With a kind of sensuous pleasure, he let himself be conquered. And snow that night seemed in everybody's thoughts. The dancing couples talked of it. The hotel proprietors congratulated one another. It meant good sport and satisfied their guests. Everyone was planning trips and expeditions, talking of slopes and tell marks, of flying speed and distance, of drifts and crust and frost. Vitality and enthusiasm pulsed in the very air. All were alert and active, positive radiating currents of creative life, even into the stuffy atmosphere of that crowded ballroom. And the snow had caused it. The snow had brought it. All this discharge of eager, sparkling energy was due primarily to the snow. But in the mind of Hibbert, by some swift alchemy of his pagan yearnings, this energy became transmuted. It rarefied itself, gleaming in white and crystal currents of passionate anticipation, which he transferred as by a species of electrical imagination into the personality of the girl, the girl of the snow. She, somewhere, was waiting for him, expecting him, calling to him softly from those leagues of moonlit mountain. He remembered the touch of that cool, dry hand, the soft and icy breath against his cheek, the hush and softness of her presence in the way she came and the way she had gone again, like a flurry of snow, the wind sent gliding up the slopes. She, like himself, belonged out there, he fancied that he heard her little windy voice come sifting to him through the snowy branches of the trees, calling his name. That haunting little voice that dived straight to the center of his life, as once long years ago two other voices used to do. But nowhere among the costumed dancers did he see her slender figure. He danced with one and all, the straight and absent, a stupid partner, as each girl discovered his eyes ever turning towards the door and windows, hoping to catch the luring face, the vision that did not come. And at length hoping even against hope, for the ballroom thinned, groups left one by one going home to their hotels and chalets, the band tired obviously, people sat drinking lemon squashes at the little tables, the men mopping the foreheads, everybody ready for bed. It was close on midnight, as Hibbert passed through the hall to get his overcoat and snow boots. He saw men in the passage by the sport room, greasing their ski against an early start. Knapsack luncheons were being ordered by the kitchen swing doors. He sighed. Lighting a cigarette, a friend offered him. He returned a confused reply to some question as to whether he could join their party in the morning. It seemed he did not hear it properly. "'He passed through the outer vestibule "'between the double-glass doors "'and went into the night. "'The man who asked the question watched him go, "'an expression of anxiety momentarily in his eyes. "'Don't think he heard you,' said another, laughing. "'You've got to shout to Hibbert, "'his mind's so full of his work. "'He works too hard,' suggested the first, "'full of queer ideas and dreams. "'But Hibbert's silence was not rudeness.' He had not caught the invitation, that was all. The call of the hotel world had faded. He no longer heard it. Another, wilder call was sounding in his ears. For up the street he had seen a little figure moving. Close against the shadows of the baker's shop it glided. White, slim, enticing. End of chapter five of The Glamour of the Snow Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood The Glamour of the Snow Chapter Six And at once into his mind passed the hush and softness of the snow, and yet with it a searching, crying wildness for the heights. He knew by some incalculable, swift instinct she would not meet him in the village street. It was not there amid crowding houses she would speak to him. Indeed, already she had disappeared, melted from view up the white vista of the moonlit road. Yonder, he divined, she waited where the highway narrowed abruptly into the mountain path beyond the chalets. It did not even occur to him to hesitate, mad though it seemed, and was, this sudden craving for the heights with her, at least for open spaces where the snow lay thick and fresh. It was too imperious to be denied, He does not remember going up to his room, putting the sweater over his evening clothes, and getting into the fur gauntlet gloves and the helmet cap of wool. Most certainly he has no recollection of fastening on his ski. He must have done it automatically. Some faculty of normal observation was in abeyance, as it were. His mind was out beyond the village, out with the snowy mountains and the moon. Andre Defago, putting up the shutters over his cafe windows, saw him pass and wondered mildly, Ah, oh, monsieur qui fait du a il est anglais, done. He shrugged his shoulders as though a man had the right to choose his own way of death. And Martha Perotti, the hunchback wife of the shoemaker, looking by chance from her window, caught his figure moving swiftly up the road. She had other thoughts. FOR SHE KNEW AND BELIEVED THE OLD TRADITIONS OF THE WITCHES AND SNOW BEINGS THAT STEAL THE SOULS OF MEN. SHE HAD EVEN HEARD, twas SAID, THE DREADED SYNAGOGUE PASS ROARING DOWN THE STREET AT NIGHT, AND NOW, AS THEN SHE HID HER EYES, THEY'VE CALLED TO HIM, AND HE MUST GO, SHE murmured, MAKING THE SIGN OF THE CROSS, BUT NO ONE SOUGHT TO STOP HIM. Hibbert recalls only a single incident until he found himself beyond the houses, searching for her along the fringe of forest, where the moonlight met the snow in a bewildering freeze of fantastic shadows. And the incident was simply this, that he remembered passing the church, catching the outline of its tower against the stars. He was aware of a faint sense of hesitation. A vague uneasiness came and went, "'Jarred unpleasantly across the flow of his excited feelings, chilling exhilaration, "'he caught the instant's discord, dismissed it, and passed on. "'The seduction of the snow smothered the hint before he realized that it had brushed the skirts of warning. "'And then he saw her. "'She stood there waiting in a little clear space of shining snow, dressed all in white, "'part of the moonlight and the glistening background, "'her slender figure just discernible. "'I waited, for I knew you would come,' "'the silvery little voice of windy beauty "'floated down to him. "'You had to come.' "'I'm ready,' he answered. "'I knew it, too. "'The world of nature caught him to its heart "'in those few words. "'The wonder and the glory of the night and snow. "'Life leaped within him.' "'The passion of his pagan soul exulted, rose in joy, flowed out to her. "'He neither reflected nor considered, but let himself go, "'like the veriest schoolboy in the wildness of first love. "'Give me your hand,' he cried. "'I'm coming.' "'A little farther on, a little higher, came her delicious answer. "'Here it is too near the village and the church.' "'And the words seemed wholly right and natural. "'He did not dream of questioning them.' he understood that with this little touch of civilization in sight, the familiarity, he suggested, was impossible. Once out upon the open mountains, mid the freedom of huge slopes and towering peaks, the stars and moon to witness, and the wilderness of snow to watch, they could taste an innocence of happy intercourse, free from the dead conventions that imprison literal minds. He urged his pace, yet did not quite overtake her, the girl kept always just a little bit ahead of his best efforts and soon they left the trees behind and passed on to the enormous slopes of the sea of snow that rolled in mountainous terror and beauty to the stars the wonder of the white world caught him away under the steady moonlight it was more than haunting. It was a living, white, bewildering power that deliciously confused the senses and laid a spell of wild perplexity upon the heart. It was a personality that cloaked and yet revealed itself through all this sheeted whiteness of snow. It rose, went with him, fled before, and followed after "'Slowly it dropped lithe, gleaming arms about his neck, gathering him in. "'Certainly some soft persuasion coaxed his very soul, "'urging him ever forwards, upwards, on towards the higher icy slopes. "'Judgment and reason left their throne, it seemed, completely, "'as in the madness of intoxication. "'The girl, slim and seductive, kept always just ahead, "'so that he never quite came up with her.' He saw the white enchantment of her face and figure, something that streamed about her neck, flying like a wreath of snow in the wind, and heard the alluring accents of her whispering voice that called from time to time, A little farther on, a little higher, then we'll run home together. Sometimes he saw her hand stretched out to find his own, but each time, just as he came up with her, he saw her still in front, the hand and arm withdrawn, they took a gentle angle of ascent. The toil seemed nothing in this crystal wine like air. Fatigue vanished. The sishing of the ski through the powdery surface of the snow was the only sound that broke the stillness. This, with his breathing and the rustle of her skirts, was all he heard. Cold moonshine, snow, and silence held the world. The sky was black and the peaks beyond cut into it like frosted wedges of iron and steel. Far below the valley slept, the village long since hidden out of sight. He felt that he could never tire. The sound of the church clock rose from time to time, faintly through the air, more and more distant. "'Give me your hand. It's time now to turn back.' "'Just one more slope,' she laughed. "'That ridge above us, then we'll make for home.' and her low voice mingled pleasantly with the purring of their ski. His own seemed harsh and ugly by comparison. "'But I've never come so high before. It's glorious, this world of silent snow and moonlight, and you. You're a child of the snow, I swear. Let me come up closer to see your face and touch your little hand.' Her laughter answered him, "'Come on, a little higher. Here we're quite alone together.' "'It's magnificent,' he cried. "'But why did you hide away so long? "'I've looked and searched for you in vain ever since we skated.' "'He was going to say ten days ago, "'but the accurate memory of time had gone from him. "'He was not sure whether it was days or years or minutes. "'His thoughts of earth were scattered and confused. "'You've looked for me in the wrong places,' "'he heard her murmur just above him. "'You looked in places where I never go.' "'Hotels and houses kill me. I avoid them.' "'She laughed, a fine, shrill, windy little laugh. "'I loathe them, too.' "'He stopped. The girl had suddenly come quite close. "'A breath of ice passed through his very soul. "'She had touched him. "'But this awful cold!' he cried out sharply. "'This freezing cold that takes me. "'The wind is rising. It's a wind of ice. "'Come, let us turn.' But when he plunged forward to hold her, or at least to look, the girl was gone again, and something in the way she stood there, a few feet beyond, and stared down into his eyes so steadfastly in silence, made him shiver. The moonlight was behind her, but in some odd way he could not focus sight upon her face, although so close." THE GLEAM OF EYES HE CAUGHT, BUT ALL THE REST SEEMED WHITE AND SNOWY, AS THOUGH HE LOOKED BEYOND HER, OUT INTO SPACE. THE SOUND OF THE CHURCH BELL CAME UP FAINTLY FROM THE VALLEY, FAR BELOW, AND HE COUNTED THE STROKES, FIVE. A SUDDEN CURIOUS WEAKNESS SEIZED HIM AS HE LISTENED. DEEP WITHIN IT WAS, DEADLY, YET SOMEHOW SWEET, AND HARD TO RESIST. HE FELT LIKE SINKING DOWN UPON THE SNOW, AND LYING THERE, They had been climbing for five hours. It was, of course, the warning of complete exhaustion. With a great effort he fought and overcame it. It passed away as suddenly as it came. We'll turn, he said with a decision he hardly felt. It will be dawn before we reach the village again. Come at once, it's time for home. The sense of exhilaration had utterly left him. An emotion that was akin to fear swept coldly through him, but her whispering answer turned it instantly to terror, a terror that gripped him horribly and turned him weak and unresisting. Our home is here! A burst of wild high laughter, loud and shrill, accompanied the words. It was like a whistling wind. The wind had risen, and clouds obscured the moon. "'a little higher, where we cannot hear the wicked bells,' she cried, "'and for the first time seized him deliberately by the hand. "'She moved, was suddenly close against his face. "'Again she touched him, and Hibber tried to turn away in escape, "'and so trying, found for the first time that the power of the snow, "'that other power which does not exhilarate but deadens effort, was upon him.' the suffocating weakness that it brings to exhausted men, luring them to the sleep of death in her clinging soft embrace, lulling the will and conquering all desire for life. This was awfully upon him. His feet were heavy and entangled. He could not turn or move. The girl stood in front of him, very near. He felt her chilly breath upon his cheeks. "'Her hair passed blindingly across his eyes, "'and that icy wind came with her. "'He saw her whiteness close again. "'It seemed his sight passed through her into space "'as though she had no face. "'Her arms were round his neck. "'She drew him softly downwards to his knees. "'He sank. "'He yielded utterly. "'He obeyed. "'Her weight was upon him, smothering, delicious. "'The snow was to his waist.' She kissed him softly on the lips, the eyes, all over his face. And then she spoke his name in that voice of love and wonder, the voice that held the accent of two others, both taken over long ago by death, the voice of his mother and of the woman he had loved. He made one more feeble effort to resist. Then, realizing even while he struggled that this soft weight about his heart, was sweeter than anything life could ever bring, he let his muscles relax and sank back into the soft oblivion of the covering snow. Her wintry kisses bore him into sleep. CHAPTER Seven. They say that men who know the sleep of exhaustion in the snow find no awakening on the hither side of death. The hours passed, and the moon sank down below the white world's rim, Then suddenly there came a little crash upon his breast and neck, and Hibbert awoke. He slowly turned, bewildered. Heavy eyes upon the desolate mountains stared dizzily about him, tried to rise. At first his muscles would not act. A numbing, aching pain possessed him. He uttered a long, thin cry for help, and heard its faintness swallowed by the wind. And then he understood vaguely why he was only warm, Not dead, for this very wind that took his cry had built up a sheltering mound of driven snow against his body while he slept. Like a curving wave, it ran beside him. It was the breaking of its overtoppling edge that caused the crash, and the coldness of the mass against his neck that woke him. Dawn kissed the eastern sky; pale gleams of gold shot every peak with splendor. But ice was in the air. "'and the dry and frozen snow blew like powder "'from the surface of the slopes. "'He saw the points of his ski projecting just below him. "'Then he remembered. "'It seems he had just strength enough to realize "'that could he but rise and stand, "'he might fly with terrific impetus "'towards the woods and village far beneath. "'The ski would carry him. "'But if he failed and fell, "'how he contrived it Hibbard never knew.' This fear of death somehow called out his whole available reserve force. He rose slowly, balanced a moment, then, taking the angle of an immense zigzag, started down the awful slopes like an arrow from a bow, and automatically the splendid muscles of the practiced skier and athlete saved and guided him, for he was hardly conscious of controlling either speed or direction." The snow stung face and eyes like fine steel shot. Ridge after ridge flew past. The summits raced across the sky. The valley leaped up with bounds to meet him. He scarcely felt the ground beneath his feet as the huge slopes and distance melted before the lightning speed of that descent from death to life. He took it in four mile-long zigzags, and it was the turning at each corner that nearly finished him. For then the strain of balancing taxed to the verge of collapse the remnants of his strength. Slopes that have taken hours to climb can be descended in a short half hour on ski. But Hibbert had lost all count of time. Quite other thoughts and feelings mastered him in that wild, swift dropping through the air that was like the flight of a bird. "'forever close upon his heels "'came following forms and voices "'with a whirling snow-dust. "'He heard that little silvery voice "'of death and laughter at his back. "'Shrill and wild, "'with the whistling of the wind past his ears, "'he caught its pursuing tones, "'but in anger now, "'no longer soft and coaxing, "'and it was accompanied. "'She did not follow alone. "'It seemed a host of these flying figures "'of the snow chased madly just behind him.' He felt them furiously smite his neck and cheeks, snatch at his hands, and try to entangle his feet and ski in drifts. His eyes they blinded, and they caught his breath away. The terror of the heights and snow and winter desolation urged him forward in the maddest race with death a human being ever knew— And so terrific was the speed that before the gold and crimson had left the summits to touch the ice-lips of the lower glaciers, he saw the friendly forest far beneath swing up and welcome him. And it was then, moving slowly along the edge of the woods, he saw a light. A man was carrying it, a procession of human figures was passing in a dark line laboriously through the snow, and he heard the sound of chanting, Instinctively, without a second's hesitation, he changed his course. No longer flying at an angle as before, he pointed his ski straight down the mountainside. The dreadful steepness did not frighten him. He knew full well it meant a crashing tumble at the bottom, but he also knew it meant a doubling of his speed with safety at the end. "'for though no definite thought passed through his mind, "'he understood that it was the village curé "'who carried that little gleaming lantern in the dawn, "'and that he was taking the host to a chalet on the lower slopes "'to some peasant in extremis. "'He remembered her terror of the church and bells. "'She feared the holy symbols. "'There was one last wild cry in his ears as he started, "'a shriek of the wind before his face.' "'and the rush of stinging snow against closed eyelids, "'and then he dropped through empty space. "'Speed took sight from him. "'It seemed he flew off the surface of the world. "'Indistinctly he recalls the murmur of men's voices, "'the touch of strong arms that lifted him, "'and the shooting pains as the ski were unfastened from the twisted ankle. "'For when he opened his eyes again to normal life, "'He found himself lying in his bed at the post office with the doctor at his side. "'But for years to come, the story of mad Hibbert skiing at night "'is recounted in that mountain village. "'He went, it seems, up slopes and to a height that no man in his senses ever tried before. "'The tourists were agog about it for the rest of the season.' and the very same day two of the bolder men went over the actual ground and photographed the slopes. Later, Hibbert saw these photographs. He noticed one curious thing about them, though he did not mention it to anyone. There was only a single track. End of the Glamour of the Snow